Well, good morning and welcome, and thank you for making this a part of your Memorial Day weekend. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 17. If you're joining us online, thank you. Maybe you're uh, vacationing as a family on this uh, uh, beautiful weekend, and thank you for joining us, or maybe you're from the community and uh, just checking us out. That'd be great, too. But uh, if you can find a Bible, look for 1 Timothy 1, verses 12 through 17. The Bible's here. That'd be page 960. In many parts of the world, you can't do this freely like we do. To gather and to follow Christ is severely persecuted in many parts of the world. I was looking at an article in Christianity Day this week, uh, published in January. The article reported data from what's called the 2021, now World Watch List, which is a study of persecuted Christians. The report states that every day, 13 Christians, on average, every day, 13 Christians are killed worldwide because of their faith. That's almost 5,000 Christians annually dying because they follow Christ. Twelve churches on average are attacked daily. These are stupendous numbers. About three-fourths of those currently are in Nigeria, though overall the most dangerous place to follow Christ is North Korea. Sometimes those who persecute Christians are themselves part of a religion and actually in their zeal they feel like they are doing God's work by persecuting Christians. Years ago, there was a man like that, so filled with hatred for Christians that he got permission from governing authorities to actually go and arrest any Christians he could find, men and women, moms and dads, he would drag them from their homes. He would get them into court and then would testify against them, hoping for the death sentence. People like that anger us. It could even make us feel sometimes like, I'm glad there's a hell for people like that. But that man is not in hell. That man is a citizen of heaven because he wrote the passage that we're studying today, as Paul, the apostle, was that man. Verses 12, 13, and 14. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Even though I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, means excessively, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul is amazed at God's extreme grace for him. Two key words that we'll see today, and in fact throughout Scripture are the terms grace and mercy. They're opposite sides of the same character trait of God, his unusual love. Grace, as you may have heard, is when we receive something good that we don't deserve, 
Mercy is when we don't receive some kind of a punishment or justice that we do actually deserve. And he uses both in this passage. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who's given me strength. Strength for what? Strength to serve him. He, he, is, he is amazed and overwhelmed that the very Savior whom he persecuted and hated was now the one he was serving, and God was giving him strength to serve. Now, by this time, Paul had himself been persecuted. Uh, if you remember, as we introduced our study into 1 Timothy, that uh, when Paul first came to Timothy's hometown of Lystra on that first missionary journey, he was himself uh, stoned and left for dead by that city's residents. And then he was either healed, or it could be that he actually died, it's unclear, and God raised him from the dead. But in that sense, God had physically given him strength. But I think he's referring here to spiritual strength that he would need every time that he would face opposition himself. Or another key time that Paul said that he received God's strength Philippians 4.13, is that there were times in his ministry that Paul went hungry. He, he didn't even have food to eat. And he says, I can be content in every circumstance. And here's why. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And probably many in here have at different times experienced God's spiritual strength as you wait and trust him to supply for some very basic uh, material needs. When Paul was himself persecuted, he could have cried out angrily for justice. It would just make sense to us, right? It was so unfair how he was treated, but instead of seeing it like that, Paul saw, I'm just grateful I am no longer them. That's who I was. And so I'm grateful that I was shown grace. It's like he's saying, I'm grateful that I am the hated and no longer the hater. It's a completely different way to look at at persecution. And if and as we in the American church experience more pressure, more opposition, more persecution, is this the perspective we need that we not just pray for justice, God will take care of justice, we'll see. We studied about God's justice and his final justice when we looked at Bible prophecy or really any time we think of heaven and hell. We know there's, there is eventual justice. But Paul, instead of ranting about injustice he faced, was filled with gratitude that he himself was not punished as he deserved. In fact, he says, God considered, Christ considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Uh, when it says he considered me faithful, we might automatically assume that, you know, like somehow Paul had passed the test of faithfulness. He had been faithful long enough that God appointed him to service. But this is not referring to Paul's past faithfulness. This is referring to the fact that God saved him in trusting him for future faithfulness. Because God says, I will take a risk on you, Paul. I will, I will appoint you to service. I know who you are will be when someone trusts someone before they are faithful that has to be grace extreme grace and there is nothing so motivating as being trusted 
Nothing so motivating ever as grace. In the 1960s, uh, David Wilkerson was a young pastor who courageously began a ministry to street gangs in New York City. A man named Nicky Cruz was uh, the leader of a dreaded gang called the Mau Mau's. And the first time that Wilkerson met Nicky Cruz, Nicky cursed him, spit on him, and told him to get out of there. And Wilkerson replied, you could cut me up into a thousand pieces and lay them in the street, and every piece would still love you. Nicky had never, ever heard love in the face of his anger and hate. And it, 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 he couldn't stop thinking about that grace. And in, in Wilkerson's biography called The Cross and the Switchblade, it's a book that I read when I was a, a, probably a young teen, uh, a particular story stood out to me. And it was a time when Wilkerson was holding a meeting in a, in a theater and preaching a regular service kind of a thing. And he took up an offering to support the ministry and he asked for volunteers for ushers to take the offerings. And so the gang members were raising their hands and everybody kind of laughs. And Wilkerson points at Nicky Cruz and some other gang members and says, you're my ushers to take the offering. And handed them empty milk cartons. And so they started going around and collecting money and they'd, they'd put it in front of somebody. If they didn't go enough, they'd, they'd shake it. <laughs> and they'd put in some more money. We're thinking of doing that. Wilkerson had instructed them that when they have all the money collected to go around the back of the stage and then come back on stage in this theater, a route that would take them right past the exit. As they got around to the back, one of the other gang members said to Nikki, well, shall we split it now or shall we fight for it? And Nikki, who had probably never been trusted, said, we're going to take it to the preacher, every penny of it. Because he hadn't been trusted before and the power of being trusted and Nicky Cruz eventually became a believer and a preacher as well. Paul never got over the fact that Jesus didn't hate him back. That grace, even though I was a blasphemer, meaning against Christ, a persecutor of those who followed Christ, a violent man against those who believed in Christ, I was shown mercy. The grace of the Lord was poured out on me. As I described Paul unnamed earlier, uh, I was not exaggerating. Take a look at a couple of Paul's own descriptions. Meanwhile, Saul or Paul, or this is, I'm sorry, about him by Luke and Acts. Paul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, a word for those who followed Christ, who is the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And then many years later, he would report it as part of his testimony to King Agrippa. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blasphemy, blaspheme or recant. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. So this went on for a while. And Paul was so amazed here in 1 Timothy. He says, I got to tell you this again. I'm sure they'd spent time together. He'd, Timothy had heard all of this. 
but I was shown mercy. Jesus didn't get even with me. I can imagine Paul's eyes more filling with tears even as he writes his story again. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with, they notice he says, along with faith and love. So it was not only his grace in saving me, which is often our focus, that as we put our faith in Christ, we know we have eternal life, but he not only saved me for eternity, he transformed me for this life now. And so the man who was filled with unbelief and hatred now was filled with a faith in God and a love for others. His life was transformed because of God's extreme grace. Because I acted in ignorance and unbelief, end of verse 13. This, uh, this is not said by Paul as an excuse. Well, I didn't know better. But it's rather part of his amazing, of the amazing grace that he experienced because when Jesus, when I didn't know who Jesus was, Jesus knew who I would be. I was in ignorance about him, but he knew all about me, and that's just the way God sees us. He sees us not as we are, but as he is calling us to be. He's the eternal God, right? So he can always see what he is making us to be. So when God saved you, what did he plan for you? What did he see that you would be, could be, should be? Because while, while, while God does not make us his child based on any conditions, he does make us his child with a purpose. And there are, there are good works to which he's appointed us and planned for us to do. And just as God sees us that way, we need to see the unbelieving world in the same way. So if you know someone who opposes you or hates Christians, and there's plenty of opportunities to see people like that, do we ever envision them for what might God do in them if they came to faith in Christ? So that instead of a sense of, a, of, of, of hatred and antagonism that we throw back at them, that we would begin to have a sense of what could they be? Isn't that a Christ-like approach? Because so many times those who oppose Christianity just frankly make us mad. And we're wanting justice. Are we so bent on justice that we can't think like Christ and think about God lavishing grace on them? Because if they don't see the grace of Jesus Christ in us, where in this crazy world are they going to see it? That's not being sissy or cowardly. It's the most, showing grace is the most courageous thing we can do. I'm afraid sometimes that as Christians we get, we, 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 get, we get this sense that they're all against us. And frankly, our thoughts are more about revenge than even justice. We want, we want some payback. And revenge is not justice. Revenge is just perpetuating injustice. They did this to me, I do this to them, I do this to you. It just goes on and on. But showing grace is what takes courage because it means I can restrain myself and I can trust God to take care of the justice issues. And Paul, the receiver of grace, would say to the Romans, do not repay anyone evil for evil. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. 
Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. God's very adequate to do that. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And he wrote this to Christians in the city, capital city of Rome, where it was on, persecution was on the brink of Nero, the emperor, persecuting Christians severely, burning them as torches. As, as persecution would grow more difficult for us as Christians, is our action plan to show God's grace or God's justice, which is our job? And, and might it even require some of the bitter pill of persecution for us to really experience how sweet it is to trust in Jesus. I'm so glad that Paul was shown grace, extreme grace, when he deserved the anger and justice of God. So verses 12 through 14 are Paul's personal story of grace and then he widens his perspective, verses 15 and 16, uh, more globally to, not even just globally in terms of the earth, but chronologically projecting all the way 2,000 years later when we live today. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Here it is, bottom line. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's what it's about. Of whom I am the worst, Paul says. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would, future, believe on him and receive eternal life. God's going to show his extreme mercy to others, Paul says, just as he showed it to me, and this most important truth is, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He, he introduces it with this description. This is a trustworthy statement. If that's a little bit familiar to you, if you're a Bible reader, it's found six times, all by Paul, and it's found only in the letters of First and Second Timothy and Titus, which are the letters he wrote to pastors. And it's reserved for saying this is a really big deal, as he writes to Timothy or Titus. Three subjects, if you do a study of those six times he said it, he either is saying salvation is a real big deal, that's what he says here, or he says godly leadership in the church is a really big deal, or he says living out your faith to benefit others, not self, is a really big deal. So he's like he's underlining bold caps when he's writing but here it is, Jesus Christ came to save sinners. The cross is the big deal. Well, sinners, we understand, right? We're, we're Bible-believing Christians. We recognize and discern sin, and we can see the moral decline. And we can see how evil is called good and good is called evil. And we are very aware of that. Paul got 
that too. He knew that. But what strikes me about Paul writing here is that somehow in this sin-saturated world, Paul is actually feeling optimistic because he's focusing on Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We, we should expect the world to be sinful. That's what we are. But here is the unusual, the, 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 the important part that we know as the family of God, and that is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I get, I get the impression that Paul woke up every morning somewhat encouraged, though I'm sure he faced fears and obvious issues. But he was encouraged because I get to be a part of Christ Jesus' task of saving sinners. We can focus on the sin or we can focus on the Savior who came to save sinners. It'll change our own, even emotions, in a difficult environment. And so Paul said, I know that my story, what God did for me, was like a prototype of what God's going to do for all those who would believe on Christ for eternal life. So I'm like exhibit A. He doesn't say that in, he doesn't say that I'm the worst of sinners in some kind of a uh, inverse pride. He says that I realized that God picked me to be an example of his extreme grace so that no one would ever say I am unsavable. And I'm willing to be that example of grace for all who would believe on him for eternal life. If you have watched some home makeover shows, you know that there's always that demo stage they show where they pull away that rotted plywood to reveal terrible, ugly mold or a nest of rodents or sometimes horror of horrors. You see 1970s decor. <laughs> Shag rug and... Uh, uh, Harvest gold appliances, things like that. Why do they show you how awful the before is? To showcase how fabulous their makeover is. And Paul is saying, God was watching me while I was hating him, ravishing his church, and in wisdom he was waiting patiently as I poured out my anger he withheld it knowing that in his justice I deserve the bulldozer treatment just push it over burn him up but he didn't he instead transformed me did a complete makeover Jesus Christ came to save sinners and it required he says this unlimited patience Patience is a unique word to describe God's grace. It's actually a kind of common word in the New Testament. This is the, the word of, usually it's about our trials. Enduring pain and suffering is called this kind of patience. But in this verse, who is the one enduring pain and suffering? Because the word always means enduring pain and suffering. Christ Jesus is displaying his unlimited pain and suffering. What, did he, what, was it, what was he enduring? I don't think this refers to the cross. It refers to the pain and suffering of Jesus when he endures sin, though he is a holy God. 
Can you imagine how repulsive that is? When you are God and you, you, everything about you is holy and pure, and yet everything about every person is sin, and it is painful to tolerate sin when you are God. But he endures and puts up with it. In fact, when, when we are watching wickedness persist or even increase, what we are watching is the grace of God because he is withholding his justice. He is waiting for many to come to faith. In fact, Peter used that exact same term for patience that Paul did when he wrote this. In a context of judgment, Peter wrote, the Lord is not slow about his promise, that is his promise to judge, as some count slowness, but is patient. He just puts up with you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And so God is showing his extreme patience, putting up with the sin of this world when he could zap it and end it at any time, but he is waiting through each generation when in his own timing the whole family of God will have come to faith in him. Waiting for them to repent, and repent is not about just being sorry for your sin. The word repent means that you go in this direction and you turn around and go that direction. And the issue about which people need to repent is the person of Jesus to understand that Christ Jesus came to save sinners and there is no other way than that. And God longs for that. This is his heart. And so Paul says, I'll be an exhibit of God's extreme patience. He began with his own story and then begins to speak about how any who will ever believe, speaking to all, speaking to any, maybe today it's speaking to you, that you would become someone, if you have not yet believed in Christ, that you would become someone who would believe on him and, as it says, receive eternal life. I'd like us to think through that statement, looking at other scriptures to make sure that each person here today or watching online, if you don't have the assurance of eternal life, that in these coming moments you would come to a confidence that you have eternal life. I like to share it as, as many of you know, uh, bad news and good news. It just makes it clear for me to realize that the bad news is about us. But the good news is about what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so you have the bulletin. You, you can, don't have to write this down if you want to maybe use this even for how you would share it with somebody else sometime. Two points of bad news, two points of good news. The bad news, first of all, about us is that all have sinned. And Romans 3.23 makes this so clear that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The the glory of God simply describes, it's it's a word that's like bright, but it describes the perfection of God. He is absolutely holy. And so to be forever in a holy, perfect heaven with a holy, perfect God, how good would you have to be? Perfect. Your record would have to be clear, clean, sinless. Everybody falls short of that. It's an impossible standard. That already changes everything about how people generally view things in religion. 
of any, of any label. Because there's this sense that somehow if my good outweighs my bad, or if I'm better than others, or I'm in the top, what, 75 percentile, maybe I'll be, I don't know. But these are the thoughts that we think humanly. And this says nobody qualifies. I like to illustrate it like if, if three of us at random went to, to the shore of Lake Michigan, and we each had a baseball, and we're told to throw the baseball over the lake. We would all have three different distances, but no one would come close to achieving what we were asked to do. And there are people who are better than others and nicer than others, right? But we all fall short. The bad news about us gets worse because of the justice of God says that all deserve eternal death. When God is eventually eternally just, there is a heaven and there is a hell. And the reality is that everyone deserves hell. That changes everything. To realize that nobody qualifies, we all deserve God's eternal justice. Uh, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The contrast there is eternal death, eternal life, heaven, hell. So if we got what we deserve, like a paycheck, wages, or the punishment of a crime, is, this is a negative, we would all deserve that judgment. As we, as, as we let the bad news sink in, it's like the spiritual diagnosis we can hear now God's solution. Because since we could not be good enough for God, we could not get to him, he came to us. That's what our passage said in verse 15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus Christ is God eternally who became man so he could do the one thing that was required and only he could do it. And he could die on the cross to pay for our sins. He could die on the cross to pay for our sins. So Paul wrote to the Romans, God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So he didn't say, when you clean up your act, I'll consider you. Send your application. He didn't say that. He said, I, I take you where you are. If you're Nikki Cruz, the gang leader, if you're Paul, the persecutor, or whatever else is on your record, while you're still sinners, Christ died. And what happened on the cross is that the, the wrath of God for your sin, the whole sin of the whole world, was put on Christ. And because he was God and because he was perfect, he could take on all of our sin judicially, but because he was man, he could die. And he died a real human death. And he died, the key words in this verse are, he died for us. That means he died in our place. We deserve the punishment but he took the punishment. Like if you had a fine to pay at the, at the courthouse and you couldn't afford it, and someone says, I'll write the check for you, and you go free. So he died in our place. The final point of the good news is where we have a decision to make. We have a choice. You can accept that or reject it because God in his love does not force anyone to do anything. And so we need to make a decision. And many of you, I'm sure, have made that decision. You might be here today or watching online, and, and uh, you're not sure that you ever made this decision. The decision is this. Will you put your trust in Jesus Christ alone? Because then you become this person. Paul says, I want to be, I'm an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. And so when it says that we need to believe in Christ or put our faith in Christ, 
I like the word trust because it means that we're going to put our dependence on Christ because he'll take our place. He has taken our place. This is Memorial Day, and uh, we celebrate or honor we, those who have served and those who have died serving. A story about a soldier named Milton Olive. Milton Olive was the first African-American to die in the, uh, I'm sorry, to receive the Medal of Honor in the Vietnam War. It was awarded to him, of course, posthumously, as you'll, you'll hear, by uh, President Lyndon Johnson. But he and four others in his squad were walking through the jungle one day when some enemies that they were pursuing turned and they, one of them threw in a grenade right into that squad of five men. And when Milton Olive saw the grenade, instead of running from it or shielding himself from it, he threw himself on it. And he died, and as a result, the other four men lived. Milton Olive happened to be a believer in Christ, and he was doing for those men what Romans 5 said that Jesus did spiritually for us. Milton died for them. Jesus died for us, taking that punishment. In our case, we have a decision to make then. Will you put your trust in Christ if you never have? trusted in him. Maybe, maybe you've been thinking that being religious or something good that you've done, you've hoped you've qualified. So I'd like us to try to understand what it means to believe on Christ, because it doesn't just simply mean to believe he exists. John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world, that's all the world of sinners, that he gave his one and only son, that's Christ taking our place. And here's the key phrase, that whoever believes on him will not perish, that's hell, but have eternal life, that's heaven. Have you believed on him? A lot of people know that Jesus died. There's crosses everywhere around the world. But have you put your faith in Christ? That's what it means to believe on him. So I'll share the three circles that some of you are acquainted with. C stands for Christ, that he died for our sins, what we've just been talking about. W stands for works, good things that people do, and there's many good things that people do. And then some would say, no, I'm trusting in Christ plus works. Somehow I know I've got to get Christ in there, but it's really how good I am. Look at the verse now, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For it is by grace, undeserved, right? It is by grace you have been saved, that's saved from our punishment that we deserve, through faith. Faith in Christ. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Kids understand a gift. Kids, kids know, okay, they gave it to me, great. Us adults, we, we tend to believe we have to earn and deserve things. And that's where we have to be correct. That's where Jesus said you have to become like a child. Children understand gifts. So I'm asking you, which of those circles represent what you currently are trusting in for eternal life? Because our passage says it's not by works, which means it can't have any works. It's about Christ and Christ alone, so that no one in heaven is going to brag on themselves. We're going to be bragging on Jesus Christ.
And so I invite you, if you've never put your faith in Christ, to make that decision. Uh, you could make it right now with a, a prayer like this. If this expresses your heart, these aren't magic words, but if this expresses your heart, to just express this to God silently, perhaps, or audibly, maybe where you're seated right now. And if you could just take a moment to, to bow your heads, perhaps, or be praying maybe for others that are making this decision right now, to say, I realize I'm a sinner. To say, I realize I cannot earn my way to heaven. And I realize that Jesus paid for my sin on the cross. That's the crucial point. So I'm a sinner. I cannot earn it. Jesus paid for my sin on the cross. And so here's the decision you're making. I am placing my faith in Jesus Christ alone right now. No longer trusting in something you did, not some, some religious ritual, some, something you, you held on to with pride saying, I, th- I think I'm good enough for God. But dropping all of that at the foot of the cross and say, I'm putting my trust in Christ alone. Just express that to God right now. If you just placed your faith in Christ, I would just say welcome to the family. You are now officially a child of God, a citizen of heaven someday. And I would encourage you to talk to maybe Pastor Seth or myself about that, or if you just have questions because something is still unclear. But we would encourage you to grow now in your faith. Now, I don't know if, 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 if you have placed your faith in Christ, what that does for your heart But in the next verse, we find what it did for Paul. Because in verse 17, after describing this amazing, extreme grace that he has received, he bursts into praise. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And he's saying that in light of, God has shown me this extreme grace And I can't help but praise him. It's one of three times in the book of 1 Timothy that Paul uh, erupts in praise. It's it's even written in such a form that it seems like it's a psalm or a song, maybe something that was sung in the early church in that day. He describes God as the king eternal or the king of the ages, literally. It's looking at the whole vast scope of time as if it's these different segments and God is God over that segment, Old Testament and New Testament and, and all the different seasons that are still coming in the future. And he, he just, he's the God of all those ages and we should praise him for that, that he is immortal, which speaks of his unchangeableness. He can't die, immortal. Everything in your refrigerator perishes. Your refrigerator will perish. And the house that your refrigerator is in is going to perish. But God will not perish. And so this promise of God to give eternal life to all who believe in him is rock solid. It's a warranty that is absolutely certain. He's immortal. And then he's invisible. We want to see God. We want to know exactly what he's doing. But no, he's invisible. The third time in chapter 6, verse 16, the third time he erupts in praise in this this, uh, uh, book, He describes God who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light whom no one has seen or can see. So we don't actually see him, but he's 
He's everything that the Bible describes the creator of the world and the one who loves us and sent Christ whom we can see. And so he is immortal, he is invisible. He's the only God. He has no competition. There are not choices of which God you want to follow. There is one God who created all things. And to him be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And that's what we will be doing forever and ever, is praising him. So Paul is prompted by his personal story of salvation, knowing God's extreme grace, and then how, how he's using him as an example to people throughout the ages, maybe some, someone right here now in, in this county who has put their faith in Christ, part of God's salvation plan. And if you know Paul's story, it was a dramatic story, how he came to faith after persecuting Christ. He was on his way to Damascus to persecute more, and Jesus Christ, the resurrected Christ, appeared to him in blazing glory on that road and just stopped him and blinded him. And that's how Paul came to understand who Jesus was and put his faith in Christ dramatically. My story was not so much. I was a six-year-old in a hospital waiting room with my godly grandfather and concerned about death because my sister had passed away in that hospital uh, just earlier that year. My aunt was in for some back surgery. and So I was talking to him about death, and Grandpa Weens explained to me this story of salvation. I don't need to worry about death if I put my faith in Jesus because Jesus paid for my sin, and as a six-year-old, I put my faith in Christ and received the same extreme grace as the Apostle Paul. We're all saved the same way. Faith in Christ alone, to him be honor and glory forever and ever. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we just rejoice at your great salvation, a salvation that was planned before you made this universe. You knew that you would put within it precious people that you would have a relationship with, that you long to love and receive love from. But you knew by giving us this good thing called free will and choice that we would not just robotically follow you. We would, we would have a choice to follow and pursue and seek you or not. And so you, you knew that the whole world would sin. And then you knew you must solve that to have a continual and eternal relationship with us. So you sent Christ Jesus, your son, who came into the world to save us as sinners. Thank you for that stupendous plan to show grace, no matter how much one has sinned, that that grace would be fully available to you, to us, because of what you have done for us. And so we thank you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.